I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. It is an incredible chapter in a book that is deep in theology, but quite frankly, within the history of Christianity, on one end of the spectrum to the other, there's been all sorts of debate about Romans chapter 11, and it has to deal uh, with what Paul is discussing. And if you've been here the past several weeks, uh, you'll know that in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is dealing with this problem, um, it's, and it's really not a problem, it's a challenge for the church there in Rome to understand some things about their own background as Gentiles and as, as well as the Jews who in that day and age, you could actually say they were Jewish in a sense that uh, they did still have the, the list that could prove Jewish heritage. Uh, it wasn't an arbitrary uh, judgment. And he was trying to explain why some Jews had rejected the gospel. And, and if this Jewish Messiah was really the Messiah, why did the majority or a large portion of them reject Jesus as their Messiah. And so they, there was this tension both in, in the culture as well as in the church, both Jew and Gentile. And did God have separate plans for them? And, and how did it all work out? And Romans chapter 11 really highlights this tension. But if I had to, and I, I'm a pastor, I kind of have to, if I had to entitle a message describing or a title describing what Paul talks about here is to never give up on people. One thing you'll discover after we get done, we're going to spend two weeks in Romans chapter 11, is that God doesn't give up on people. Whether it's their race, whether it's their background, what they've done or haven't done, yes, God does judge us ultimately, and he does harden some and give us over to our own desires on occasion. But it's amazing this grace that God has for people. I want to start out with a simple question. Has anyone ever given up on you? That's a tough thought. Has anyone ever given up on you? Back when I was in pharmaceuticals, the first decade out of college, um, I, I thought I was this great salesperson because I was working for a real small company and I was number one in the country with this, this company as far as ranking, but it was a small company, right? It's like if anyone ever says to you, yeah, I graduated first in my class, always ask them, how many were in your class? It could be a class of three, right? And, and they were just the, the, the top uh, of three. But my company wasn't quite that small, but I was a little arrogant and and that company was being purchased, so I went to a new company, and this new company was a different kind of sales, and there were about 150 people in our region, and after about a year, you know where I ranked in that region? Like 147 out of, out of 150. And so I was absolutely frightened when I, I received this phone call that my boss was going to come ride with me this coming week. Not only that, but he tells me in advance, I'm going to come ride with you this week, but then my boss, he's going to come ride with you next week. And so I didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I knew something was up. It's never good when your boss is riding with you. Maybe when you're number one and they're about to tell you, you know, you're, you're going to be promoted. But when you're number 147, something's up, right? And the crazy thing was they actually came and I thought they had given up on me. I really did. I thought they were about to fire me. And they did fire my two partners, actually. But my boss's boss, when he came and rode with me, he actually liked what I was doing and he believed in what I was doing. He just attributed other factors to the poor results. And I actually ended up getting a promotion by God's grace. But I remember that feeling when someone I thought 
had my back and who was there to, to, to really kind of build me up and to encourage me and to train me, I thought when they were coming to fire me, my whole identity, my whole world was just shaken. And I got to tell you, oftentimes we give up on people. We give up on our neighbors, uh, on the leadership in our country, in our community. We give up on family members, specifically in regards to their coming to faith in Christ. We've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for them, and we've shared and, and we've talked with them, but it's, it's not like we're seeing any results, and we give up. But the good news is this. Number one, God doesn't give up. And I want to encourage you not to give up because you never know what's going on behind the scenes with God. As you're going to see here in this chapter, as we begin to dig in the first 15 verses, God's doing a lot of things behind the scenes that even the prophet Isaiah, or I mean Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, he got it wrong. He didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes. So before you give up, before you toss in the towel of the people that maybe have hurt you, or even hated you, or persecuted you, or kicked you to the curb, or, or maybe there's someone that you, you wisely have excluded from your life because their, their behavior is so dangerous, they're not even appropriate to be around your family. Yes, that's wise, but even though you've excluded them and held them at arm's distance, don't give up on them because you never know what God can do in their lives. Whether it was Gentiles or Jews in Paul's day, you're about to see here this amazing uh, grace that God has. Well, let's begin in verse 1 and back up just one verse to uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 21, the very last verse of the chapter there, to give you some context. And it says this, Paul recounting, he says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the stage is set, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God called the descendants of Abraham to be a, a people for himself, and they rebelled. There were some that were faithful, but they were constantly rebelling, and uh, God sends them into exile. He judges them. He brings them back into the land, but even during Jesus' day, the leadership of, of the time are disobedient. They reject the Messiah, and Jesus is crucified, and yet... Paul is quoting here, all day long, speaking of God, I've held out my hands, even when they were disobedient. And beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Once again, here, he can literally trace his ancestry back to Benjamin. There wasn't any guesswork in Paul's day. He was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. And he asked this question, and this is the question that a lot of people in the church today ask, and they get it wrong according to Scripture. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he's about to explain what his people are here when he's referring to his people. And he says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. So an answer to the question is, no, he has not rejected the Jewish people. He has not, according to Paul. And there's a lot of bad teaching in the church that says he has. He hasn't. Romans is explicit here. He's very clear, and he uses himself as an example. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. He was a part of the nation, 
And God had not rejected him. Verse 2, he clarifies this, though, of his people. Notice earlier in Romans, we had talked about who a Jew was. And Paul explains two things that is often overlooked by the church today. Number one, every single Jew who was a descendant wasn't considered a Jew. He uses both Isaac and Esau as examples. He uses Abraham and Ishmael and all sorts of things as examples. It wasn't that every single physical descendant of Abraham was a Jew, and also a true Jew was one who was spiritual. And so he clarifies who his people are. In verse 2, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And so if you've been with us the past couple weeks, and we're going to cover this briefly, um, the idea that God's foreknowledge of those who would believe in him, those are his people, regardless of ethnic background, his foreknowledge. And a lot of people today, you can, you can buy books, in fact, entire volumes, series of books on God's foreknowledge and all that entails. But the interesting thing is this, the idea of foreknowledge, this Greek word only occurs approximately five or six times in the New Testament at all. And, and the scriptures don't bring up the questions that we bring up. For instance, one example is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says, He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. So foreknowledge in this case is just simply knowledge of the future. Foreknowledge. It's the same Greek word. 2 Peter 3, 17 says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that's an actual phrase that's describing this one Greek word of foreknowledge, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So just knowing in advance. So the idea of God's foreknowledge in, in, in the context that we're speaking of, as well as in Romans uh, overall isn't some real deep thing that is explained. It is definitely deep in the sense of knowing something beforehand, how God can do that. But notice how it's used here in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we spent quite a, a bit of time on. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's foreknowledge, based on that, he predestines people, but not a predestination like a robot where you just punch in a little program and they do everything they tell you. No, he knows who will believe, and he has this predestination, and this predestination isn't a removal of choice or decision or belief. The, the entire context of Romans excludes that. But it is a plan, a set of blueprints, if you will, that is generally the same, that we are conformed to the image of his son. Now, that might look slightly different for everyone, but generally, that's the predestination that is spoken of in Scripture. It is a plan that you can either agree to and be a part of or not. That is the predestination. But here he speaks in Romans chapter 11, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So you might think that the apostle Paul is slipping up here. He, he's arguing that God hasn't rejected him, but then he's using an example of Elijah who is calling out to God that says, Israel, there isn't anyone. They're gone. But he, notice what he does here in verse 
3 of chapter 11, and he's referring to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 and 14. He speaks against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished the altars, or your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Four things they did to the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that has ever lived. He says, one, these people, they have killed your prophets. Now today, here in America, you're not having to worry about anyone killing you, most likely. But in Egypt, if you live in Egypt, as you've seen on the news, you very likely could be killed. Christians, uh, Muslims, various different faiths are under attack, as well as throughout the Middle East. And in Elijah's day, the very people of God, this is what's crazy, is the people who claimed to know God had killed the people that God had raised up to speak to them. You would think that God would have kicked them to the curb for that. He did not. Notice the second thing is they have demolished your altars. In the Old Testament, you would meet at a high place and ultimately the temple to worship. The tabernacle first and later the temple. And you would worship at the altar. You would bring sacrifices of various different kinds. They destroyed those. Can you imagine? Now, obviously today we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We don't have to come to a building to worship God, but we do gather here to to worship together. And can you imagine Christians seeking to destroy this place of worship? And you would think, all right, if any time that God would kick someone to the curb, it might be for that. But no, they didn't do that in Israel, or God didn't do that. They had killed prophets, they had destroyed places of worship, and then this is the really tough one. I am left all alone. I alone am left. Have you ever felt alone sitting in a church full of people? I have. It's really easy to get judgmental about other Christians. Now, unbelievers, you just kind of expect that of them. But I've seen within the church myself, people really get harsh and judgmental and leave the church and they they just cast everyone under the, the same banner of saying, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. They're not really seeking God. Uh, they're into cliques and they, they weren't friendly to me. And, and they had this long list of excuses as to why they all alone are serving God and no one else is. Well, Elijah does this. He's like, oh, I'm all alone. Well, you can kind of understand it, right? If you're seeing people getting killed, your friends who are the prophets and altars being destroyed, you could actually believe that. And then finally he says, they're seeking my life. They're trying to kill me. And he's crying out to God. But what is God's reply to him? Probably not what he wanted to hear. He probably wanted to hear, oh, Elijah, I'm so sorry. We're going to take care of everything. Everything's going to get better. He says, no. He says, I have kept or left. Uh, This word occurs, this word kept in the Greek occurs 24 times in the New Testament. He says, I have left or kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Baal was an idol that that was very common to worship in Israel during that day. And he says, verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen or elected by grace. So he covers two huge things here that you might not be aware of. Number one, Elijah got it wrong. In the Old Testament, that's what's cool about the Old Testament. You really have to read the books 
carefully to know what God approves of and because God allows the prophets to really cry out some things that aren't always accurate. Jeremiah accuses God of, of being a deceptive brook, basically being a liar. The Psalms, they allow the psalmist to cry out to God their feelings. And so you have to read them in their entirety to know what God approves of. And here Elijah is saying, I'm all alone. And God says, no, there's 7,000 people. 7,000 people that maybe they're not hanging out with you. Maybe they're not going to quote your church, so to speak. Or maybe they're not a part of your friends. And maybe you are, someone is trying to kill you. But guess what? I'm still actively at work. And there are still people who are faithful to me. In Baker City, I love this community, but it's easy to get the Baker City mentality. It really is. And not see what God is doing in his kingdom across the world. That's why I encourage you, if you've never been on a mission trip, both either nationally or internationally, to see what God is doing. Because you could get a really um, perverted perspective on what God is actually doing today if you never leave Baker City. And, and God is doing great things in Baker City, but he is doing and continues to do amazing things around the world. But within our community, it's really easy to say, well, that church over there isn't doing anything, or that church over there isn't doing anything, and it's only this church that's doing something. One of the neat things that, that we got to do and participate in this, this the past couple of weeks was Operation Christmas Child, and we were a drop-off point. We were the ones that were gathering boxes from the entire community to send up to, to Tri-Cities. And notice I use the word we very liberally because really it was one individual who had to drive the truck and it wasn't we, it was him. But I'm taking credit for it, right? Because he doesn't have a mic today. So <laughs> what we got to see was this incredible generosity from all the different churches, all that God is doing in, in, in the lives of people in other churches now, certain churches, you know, you might not agree with their theology or some of the things they're teaching, but within these churches, there, there are incredibly generous and faithful people still. It's easy to have that woe is me attitude. I want to encourage you not. There are believers that are doing more. The kingdom of God is beyond Blue Mountain Baptist Church. Do not forget that. And, and Elijah, one of the greatest prophets ever, misses this. And he says this. Number one, God uses this example in Elijah's day that he had 7,000 people in Elijah's day remaining. We're not talking about a future remnant, but a remnant in Elijah's day. And in verse 5, Paul uses this example. He says, so too now or the present time there is a remnant. He's not, using, he's not using the future tense as in years and years from now, there's going to be a remnant. No, he's speaking and using an example of in Paul's day, there is a remnant of which Paul was one of them. He's using himself in his example, chosen or elected by grace. Well, what in the world does this mean as far as election? Well, the very next verse that uh, follows 829 is Romans 830. After he talks about uh, predestination, he says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it, this idea of chosen or elected is tied in with a calling and justification and glorifications. 
Notice this in Romans chapter 11, verse, or 9, verse 11. He says, though they were not yet born, speaking of some descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, he says, though they were not yet born and done, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God foreknows, and those whom he foreknows, he predestines or elects, once again, we're not taking away God's free will because he continues to call. There needs to be a response. And then finally, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, this is one of, of six times uh, that this word elect occurs in the New Testament. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen or elected you. It's the same Greek word there. So the idea that in verse 5 of chapter 11, when Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace or elected by God's grace. He's saying that there are those within the Jewish lineage, physical descendants of Abraham, that there is a remnant in Paul's day, just like there was a remnant in Elijah's day. Even though Paul and maybe the church at Rome couldn't see it, there is a remnant that God is still working in by his grace. He elected them based on his foreknowledge, and he calls them. And the idea is that the church in Rome should not give up on the Jews. Paul was one. Paul was saved. God was still working among the Jews. Paul lived many decades after Jesus had arisen and was sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven as he is there today. He is continuing in Paul's day, and I believe he is still continuing, to work among all people. It's just we don't always see it. We should not give up on anyone. Paul is saying God's grace is still active, and he is elected, and there is a remnant in their time. Verse 6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. And so he goes back to this theme that he had hit on several times in Romans. There were Jews that were trying to pursue the law, not to end in Christ, but pursue the law to achieve a righteousness on their own. But he says, no, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, here's a difference in some of the ancient Greek texts. If you have the New King James today, it continues in verse 6 and says, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work, basically restating the first half of that verse. The ancient Greek texts differ there. The oldest texts don't have that, but just because they're older doesn't mean they're right. So there is some debate, but the context and the, the meaning there does not change. He is saying we come to God by grace, not by works. The Jews who would believe, who are called, it is by God's grace. The Gentiles who, are, who would believe and are called, it is by grace. And then he asks this question, verse 7, what then? His answer is real simple. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So within Israel, and he explained this in earlier chapters, there were some that, that were actually, even though they were physical descendants of Abraham, they were not considered part of Israel. Uh, 
Here, he just simply says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Notice, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. This gives us context for this idea of hardening. And we're covering it in this passage of Scripture, what we covered earlier, and some of these difficult concepts of what God's activity is behind the scenes. Because we have it real simple. We go proclaim the gospel, and it's simple. We preach it, proclaim it, and people respond. But here, God is once again revealing to us some of his activity behind the scenes. And what he's saying is simply this, that they were pursuing it. They had all the knowledge they need. Earlier in Romans, Paul says everyone has the, the necessary knowledge for salvation, just looking at creation. But then he says that God specifically revealed himself to the Jewish people through all sorts of prophets, through the covenants, through the promises, and all these different things. And so they had the opportunity to believe, and they, some did and some didn't. And for those who didn't, God does this. He hardens them. He hands them over, as in earlier chapters of Romans, whether it's completely to their own ideas and, and hardens them to the point he just gives them over to themselves. He doesn't really explain, but he hardens them. I want to encourage you today. If you have someone in your life that you think has hardened themselves to hearing the gospel, maybe even this Thanksgiving, as you're around family and friends, you, you kind of avoid the relatives that said, I've heard you tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear it again. They kind of laid down that law, right? Well, guess what? They're not God. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> and last time I checked, your relatives aren't in control of your life. And you're free to speak about the love of Jesus anytime you want. And I want to tell you, God doesn't say, all right, tell them about Jesus, then just quit. Sometimes he, he described to his disciples, all right, kick off the dust of your feet and move on to the next town. But overall, he doesn't give up. They may be hardened for a period of time. Maybe you were hardened for a period of time. Maybe you heard the gospel at a really young age in church and you walked away. And then later in life, you, you, you came back and you heard it and you knew this whole time what was right, but your heart was hardened and you just didn't want to obey. And you reached a point in your life and you go, you know what? I'm done running. I'm not going to push God away anymore. I'm all in. You never know what God is working and how he's working in people's lives. And he, he gives two examples in Scripture in verses 8 and 9. He says, as it is written, God gave them a, and quoting of Isaiah chapter 29 here, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Verse 9 of chapter 11, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. If, if you read the Gospels real closely, you'll notice Jesus says some things very similar to this. He teaches for quite a while, but after they come to him again and again and again and they refuse to believe, he actually starts teaching in parables so they don't understand. A lot of people think Jesus taught in parables to clarify things. No, he specifically says to make it difficult for some of them to understand. 
There's a time where God gives you over to yourself if you reject it, according to Scripture, at least in the history of Israel, as well as in Jesus' ministry. In verse 11, he says, So I asked them, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, this is a real simple illustration. Have you ever been walking along? And many of you do this. I have a wonderful wife who thinks it's fun to walk up and down the hills in the mountains. I'm thinking that's why they made motorcycles. But I love her and I go along with her. And the, the crazy thing, part of the reason why I don't really like it is because I'm, I'm walking like this the whole time because I'm trying not to stumble. I want to walk like this, but if you walk like this, looking at all the beauty, which is why she, she wants to go, you walk like this, you're going to land on your face real quickly. And I've seen some of you do it. I'm not going to throw any under the bus. But you're trying to not do a face plant on the trail. It, so eventually you get to a point where you can look up and, and admire the beauty. And that's kind of the picture here is, yes, if you stumble, good. No harm, no foul. We want you to get to where you look up and you're stopped and, and you're humble and you admire the beauty. But if you, you keep your head down, you miss the beauty. But if you keep your head up and, and just on your own path, you're going to stumble and eventually fall. Stumbling is okay because you don't get hurt. Falling, you can fall off a cliff. You can do the face plant and break a nose. You can do all sorts of stuff. So the Apostle Paul's hearing just saying, God is going to harden these people, that he's basically trying to get them from being arrogant and to cause them to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Let's, let's pause for a second. Let's reevaluate where we're going so we don't fall. God isn't trying to harm or, or do evil to his people He's just simply getting their attention. He says, by no means, and this is where things get kind of crazy with the translations that we have. On the one hand, the King James does a terrible job. On the other hand, it does a great job. Same thing with the ESV, and I'll explain. And he says, by no means. So what is he saying by no means? Once again, in verse 11, top of it, he says, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He says, by no means. In other words, they're not going to fall. He says, rather through their, and this is where the King James causes a lot of confusion. It says, rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Yet he just said he wasn't going to cause them to fall. I have no idea why they translated it like that, but every other place in the New Testament, and it occurs a lot, and it is this, translated this way in the ESV, it's translated trespass. He says, by no means, rather through their trespass or their unwillingness to obey the word of God, or to sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if there, and once again, the, the New King James kind of goes crazy here and says fall, it, which is really confusing, but now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, and this is where the King James gets it right, I think, how much will their fullness mean? This is where the ESV adds confusion. It says, how much will their full inclusion mean? Describing all of them, and it, that's not what this word means. It's a fullness, an undetermined amount of people who are growing, and they reach a point at some point where they're full. 
So let's review what he's actually talking about after we get through the, the Greek stuff. He says, by no means. In other words, God isn't trying to destroy Israel. Rather, through their sin or trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You've got to pause. Has your salvation made anyone jealous? Has your, I mean, think about Paul's logic here. He's saying the salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. He's actually hoping that will bring them back to salvation. Is God so amazing in your life and done such a work and so transforming that people look at you and go like, I got to have what Bob has. I got to have what Mary has. I don't know a lot of people that look at my life all the time and say that of me. But that's exactly the argument that Paul is using here. That people are saved and they have such joy, they have such peace. They might not have riches, they might not have really much peace in this world. They may be uh, even being persecuted and killed, but in the midst of all that craziness, people still look at him and be like, why is this guy still smiling? Why is he still singing? The disciples, when they were tortured and beaten and thrown in jail, they're singing hymns. I'd be, I'd be like, woe is me, get me out of here. I'm not singing, you know, uh, a, a hymn written by Wesley in the 1700s. No, uh, I am whining if someone is beating me. I'm not praising God, unfortunately. But we've all been in a place, actually, where we have been like that. Can you think back to when you were saved? That very first time, when you knew for sure that God had wiped away every sin that you've ever committed, that that joy and that peace, that the guilt that you've been carrying around for your whole life, even if you were just a young person, that God had wiped it away, and you are now declared innocent. And someday when you stand before God in heaven, that same judgment will be pronounced. You are no longer guilty Christ took everything on him. There is a joy and there is a peace. You just want to go tell everybody. They're like, what happened to Bob? Is he on drugs? No, he's on Jesus. <laughs> Why aren't we like that today, though? Well, sometimes we get beat down and wore down and we drift and we begin looking for that peace and joy in other places, in hobbies, in entertainment, in money, in, in careers, in, in homes. We have that joy and we're like, all right, I'm going to take that joy and I'm going to add to it with this other stuff. And you don't realize that the other stuff not only doesn't add to it, but it takes away. Here he says this, they will be jealous or they should be jealous. Verse 12, now if their sin or trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness mean? Well, what does he mean by fullness? I, I discussed it just a second ago a little bit. Well, he explains in verse 13 and 14 what he means. He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So there were Jews and there were Gentiles in the church there in Rome. And he says, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. In other words, he's not ashamed of preaching the gospel. He had said that earlier in Romans. He's, he's telling everybody that he is proclaiming 
the gospel to the Gentiles. He's really trying to needle his fellow Jew, Jews, to be honest. And he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So the fullness isn't necessarily everyone, it's some of them. And it is occurring in Paul's day. How full, we don't know. But it certainly... Paul is, is trying to see some of them saved in his day. He hasn't given up on them. He is just trying his best to make them jealous of like, hey, you remember the temple? That's nothing compared to Jesus. You want the real, true meaning of the Old Testament? Come hear what I have to say to, about Jesus to these Gentiles. He's, he's doing his best to kind of stir the pot. As you can imagine, Paul isn't exactly the ultimate statesman. He, he's not afraid to tell it how it is. In verse 15, he says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Don't forget, in Romans, he's already covered this. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When you're reconciled to God, it means God's wrath no longer remains on you that you now have access to what the Jews had only hoped for. They had the Holy of Holies where just a, a few individuals throughout the year could go, and now you have direct access to God. You've moved from life or from death to life. And once you are saved, so to speak, he says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. Once you are saved, you're to continue in the Spirit. You're, you're not to pursue the things that led to death. You're to pursue God. Verse 14, once again, he says, In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. That's his absolute passion. Let me ask you this. I, I started this message with a question. Let me end with a question. I'd asked, has anyone ever given up on you? Well, let's assume many of you have come to faith in the Lord. Where was it? Where were you when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Was it a bedroom in your house? Was it a particular church? Was it at a camp? Was it in a particular town that you can remember? Think back right now. Where were you when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, many of you I've shared before, I didn't grow up in church, but my parents sent me to a church camp when I was 13 years old, and this is it. This is a place called Falls Creek near Davis, Oklahoma. This was a few years before I was there, obviously black and white. I'm not that old. Uh, there were color photographs. This was the main um, tabernacle is what they called it, I believe. Uh, it held about 4,000 teenagers. And they held it right in the middle of summer in Oklahoma where it's about 105 degrees outside and about 80% humidity. And they stuck about 4,000 teenagers in an open air building in that weather and and they were kind enough. They had a few fans, like 10 fans for 4,000 people. And 
believe it or not, kids came, as you can see. You can't, I mean, this is only a partial picture. It's much bigger than this. And I was thinking back this week as I was preparing this message when, when I knew that God had not given up on me. And on the left-hand side of this photograph, there's this line of poles. To the left of that, there's a second line of poles and a third line of poles. But on the second line of poles, all the way at the back, I sat in a wood bench at age 13. And there was one guy up here. He was actually dressed in a suit. They, I felt even worse for the, the preachers. They made him wear suits back in the day. 100 degrees heat, 80% humidity, five fans, I think. Anyway... I heard a preacher talk about the gospel for the very first time. And I can remember sitting on that bench with my hands just gripped the bench in front of me. I was not going to go down at the altar call. Even though I knew everything that that preacher just said about Jesus, myself, my sin, my guilt, God's forgiveness, I didn't want to make a decision, at least the first night. And I never actually went down on an altar call. But towards the end of the week, I'd heard a message time and time again. And I made a decision right then and there that I was all in. That my life was over and I was going to live a life for Jesus. I didn't know what that meant. I, I really didn't. No one came along and, and discipled me. But I knew it's just like I'm all in for Jesus. And as I was thinking about this week, I was like, I wonder if that place still exists. That was a long time ago. I've gotten kind of old, and, and things did change over the years. And this was a, a more modern photo. Uh, notice the cool guy in the white belt and the white shoes. Yeah, this was the 80s. Coolness didn't exist in the 80s. But here's the crazy thing. This guy who's up there leading 4,000 people like this, doing the old, you know, like leading the choir sort of deal, their entire technology consisted of this guy and a guy on a little platform with a white spotlight and, and a microphone. That was all the technology they had. And they didn't care about being cool as adults. They just cared about the gospel. And amazingly, people responded. But over time, this place kind of got wore out and got old. And the people, just like Paul says here, it's his greatest desire to save some of them. People in Oklahoma had to decide is, do, do we just like let this camp go? Do we give up on it? Do we just say enough is enough? They didn't. Just like I was sitting in that seat that, that one day and I said, I'm all in. I didn't know what it meant. But these leaders who were sacrificing to, to see kids saved, well, those kids got saved and they grew up and, and they were all in. And they didn't want it to, to end. And so when this building finally got run down, they chose to continue the ministry, and, and this is the building they replaced it with. It's part of the building, at least. You see, as you can imagine, fitting four or 5,000 kids in one building, it's not your average church. And so this is a partial picture from the inside today. Davis, Oklahoma, for 12 weeks approximately out of every summer, they pour four to 5,000 kids from all across Oklahoma into this one building. And this is just Southern Baptists. This is just the one denomination. To the left and the right, there's still many, many rows. 
They're all about seeing some kids say they're not giving up. And I got to tell you, this is a building that costs tens of millions of dollars. But they had been kids themselves that had heard the gospel message there at that camp. And no matter what life had thrown at them, later as they grew, as they acquired wealth, they decided, you know what? I'm still all in. I'm a sacrifice. I'm a give, and I'm going to make sure someone hears the gospel. I'm not giving up on these kids. Well, in our community, we have to decide. Are we going to give up on our neighbors and our friends? Are we going to give up on our families? As, as we move into the, the coming years, we're talking about expanding here. We're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about, are we really going to actually continue to proclaim all the gospel, both the good and the bad? The good news isn't good unless there's some bad news. And you have to decide, number one, are you all in? What would have happened wherever you got saved at? What would have happened if no one had invested and taken the time to share with you? That's what we're going to be about as a church, making sure that happens for our kids, our teenagers, our adults. Moving forward in the coming years, that's exactly what we're going to do. And I want to invite you to be a part of it, to not give up on people. God hasn't. We won't. Will you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the grace you showed in my life. Yet you called me, even though it was by your grace, you called me to make a decision. And if there's anyone in here that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I encourage them to do this very moment at the very present time. That they themselves would simply pray. It's not a, a prayer of works. It's just a decision of confessing their sin quietly, silently before you and asking you to forgive them and to receive you, to trust in you as Lord, that you would be Lord of their life, to give their life, that they would be all in for you. Your word promises us if we do that, responding to your call, that you will save us. That's all that's needed. We don't have to be baptized. We don't have to go to church to do any of this. There's no work that can do it. Your son achieved all the work on the cross when he died for our sins. Father, if anyone in here was bold enough to, to pray that and to ask that of you, I just pray that you would give them the boldness to make that public, to, after church, find someone, find me, find any of our leaders in here and share that so we can build them up and not leave them alone as, as many of us were left alone after we trusted in you to help them be disciples for you. Father, use this church in the coming days, in the coming years to expand the kingdom of God. Lord, we praise you and we thank you so very much for the people in our lives that didn't give up on us, that shared the gospel, that, that sacrificed time and money and vacation and all the stuff that, that goes into the proclamation of the gospel. We thank you for them and we thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.